My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 30, Setbacks and Remedies. First things first, a tremendous Happy New Year to you all, even if I am a few weeks late. I hope you've all been well, staying safe, and doing as well as you can be, given the current state of the world. Since the last episode, Grey History has officially had its first birthday, so a big thank you to you and everyone else who has helped the podcast make it to one. If only my houseplants could say the same. Now, I know I've been away for almost two months, but I promise it was for good reason. I was busy writing this episode, and after a hell of a lot of writing and some 11,000 words later, I realised that perhaps I was being a tad too ambitious. So, I accepted my fate and decided to make it two episodes. Thus, the good news is that there will not be that long a wait for episode 31. Furthermore, I am determined to make sure that I produce at least one episode a month in 2021, and that's in addition to a couple of bonus episodes. It's my New Year's resolution, and I plan to stick to it. The agenda for the immediate future looks something like this. In this episode, we're going to cover the initial weeks of the Revolutionary War, as well as the major developments which unfold in Paris as a result of the fighting on the front lines. Since it's been a while since our last narrative episode, I'll also sneak in a brief recap of the various competing factions within France, just as a bit of a refresher. That will then set us up for episode 31, The Rise of the Sans-Culottes. The good news is that I've already done all the research for that episode, as well as a decent chunk of the writing, so episode 31 should be out in just a couple of weeks. At roughly 40 hours a pop, these new episodes are indeed taking a little bit of time, but I do hope that you agree that they're worth the wait. Before diving into the show, however, I would like to say a huge, gigantic, monumental thank you to everyone who is supporting the show on Patreon, including the 22 new Patreons who have signed up since the last narrative episode. So, a thank you to Miranda, Felix, Charles, Max, Becky and Rob, William, Ivan, Terry, John, Brian, Carl, Gwen, Michael, Damon, Kevin, Jennifer, Sebastian, Adam, Javier, Toby, Mikhail, and a citizen who would like to remain anonymous, but I can assure you of their revolutionary credentials. Also, a special thank you to Jeffrey for being an extra generous champion of the people. A reminder that the best way that you can help support Grey History, as well as unlock access to a range of exclusive content, is through supporting the show on Patreon. By donating a dollar or more per episode, you'll be able to play your part in getting Grey History closer to everyone's dream of weekly episodes. Also, a tremendous thank you for the people who are telling their colleagues, friends and family about the show as well as everyone who has left written reviews or written to me via the website, Facebook, Instagram, or any other medium. When putting the pen down seems like the easiest path forward, 
your kind words definitely help me find the motivation for those early mornings, late nights, and less than wild weekends. In short, thank you to everyone who is helping to support, strengthen, and grow the Grey History community. I sincerely appreciate it, and I promise that as soon as it's possible, I'll produce more Grey History more often. One final note. Grey History is now on Instagram. There's an amusing blooper that I've left in the show, but the point is, Grey History Podcasts, one word. Going forward, maps, portraits, and a range of other visual content will accompany the episodes, and I'll put them both on the website and on the Instagram. So go ahead, give it a follow. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 30, Setbacks and Remedies. There are very few dates in the early years of the French Revolution that one can point to and say, that there, that event, fundamentally changed the course, the trajectory, the character of the revolution. The 20th of April 1792 is one of those dates. The decision of the Legislative Assembly to declare war on Austria, or more accurately, on the King of Hungary and Bohemia, was a policy which had monumental consequences. In terms of significance in shaping the trajectory and character of the revolution, it is perhaps rivaled by only the civil constitution of the clergy. And of course, that policy can be considered as its own declaration of war against the church. Ironically, when war was declared in April 1792, its numerous proponents within France failed to understand the gravity of their decision. According to the war's supporters, this would be a quick war, an easy war, a short war. Of course, we know that it was anything but, that for almost a quarter of a century, peace in Europe would be infrequent and fragile. Support for such a fundamental shift in foreign policy came from across the political spectrum. Advocates for war could be found amongst the Jacobins, the Fionns, the court, and the ultra-royalist émigrés in exile. All of these factions favoured war for a multitude of self-serving reasons, and, as is so often the case in history, all of them would manage to fail in securing their goals. As previously discussed, perhaps the most vocal champions of war originated from the Brousseauan faction within the Jacobin Club. Led by Jacques Brousseau and several capable associates, the Brousseauans argued that war was the only means of securing the safety and longevity of the new French state. Originally targeting the German princes of the Rhineland, the Brousseauans declared that the French émigrés were the source of the nation's numerous woes. Only in confronting these seditious reactionaries 
could the nation remedy its troubles, a list of which included civil and religious unrest, uncontrolled inflation, and shortages in foodstuffs and basic commodities. With the French émigrés gathering on the territory of the German electors of Trier and Mainz, it was argued that war was required to forcibly disperse this destabilising menace. However, over the course of late 1791 and early 1792, the scope and justifications for war expanded. By April, calls for a small war against a handful of petty German princes had ballooned to demands for a continental conflict. This conflict would resemble a universal crusade of liberty, one that would simultaneously liberate the enslaved peoples of Europe and restore the besmirched honour of the French nation. For the Brissoans, war would have the additional benefit of restricting the political mobility of the king. The hardships of war would make unpopular positions all the more difficult to maintain, encouraging Louis to reign in accordance with the constitution. In reality, what that meant was that the Brissoans saw war as a way of empowering the legislature and constraining the executive's ability to issue unpopular vetoes. As we have discussed, however, some historians suspect there was a disconnect here between Brissoan justifications and Brissoan motivations. Several historians, for example, accuse the Brissoans of deliberately seeking war to weaken the monarchy and supplant the constitution of 1791 with their own more democratic, perhaps even republican alternative. Whether this was truly a key motivating factor has yet to be definitively proved, and also risks oversimplifying the highly non-homogenous nature of the Brissoan faction. Nevertheless, the Brissoans, later to be known as the Girondins, certainly sought war as a means of securing their version of the revolutionary project, and ideally, further emphasising the revolutionary component. Aiding the Brissoans in their march to war were their former Jacobin associates, the Fions. Initially championed by the war minister Narbonne and the war hero Lafayette, Many Fillons saw in a successful war the opportunity to strengthen the position of the king and further solidify the existing constitutional monarchy of 1791. War would rally the people behind the nation's leader, and victory would restore stature and authority to the embattled monarch. Of course, not only did war present an opportunity to rehabilitate the king's reputation, but it presented the same opportunity for several leading fions, most notably the Marquis de Lafayette. The hero of two worlds had endured a rough 12 months. In June 1791, Lafayette had, well, managed to lose the king, and just one month after the flight to Varennes, the general on the white horse was denounced for the massacring of Parisians on the Champ de Mars. Constitutionally ineligible to become a minister or sit in the Legislative Assembly, the former deputy of the National Assembly was looking for a way to revive his much-reduced political fortunes. War was the perfect opportunity. Yet, while many Brissoans and Fillons saw in war a chance to further their own political and personal objectives, 
others within the pro-war camp sought a completely different solution, one which crushed the revolutionary project. Far from liberating Europe, Louis XVI, and even more so Queen Marie Antoinette, saw in war a means not to liberate the enslaved peoples of Europe, but rather the imprisoned monarchs of the French court. Believing France incapable of sustaining even a semi-campaign, the monarchs were confident of Austria's victory, particularly with Prussia's likely involvement. Furthermore, the Russians, the Swedes, and an assortment of other smaller European crowns were making favourable noises too. Perhaps all of Europe would rise up to smother this ungodly experiment and save the French monarchs in the process. Equally thrilled at the prospect of war were the French émigrés. Unlike the court, the exiles of France made no secret of their desire to overturn the demonic revolution. While not all émigrés longed for the complete resurrection of the old regime, they did see war as the only means to reverse their misfortunes, and greeted its arrival with glee. As one émigré stated, It was war, and joy was written on every face the day we received the order to leave our encampment around Kublenz. In short, the French decision to declare war on Austria on the 20th of April 1792 was supported by a vast array of political factions, many officially collaborating with each other, yet secretly scheming for their rivals' demise. Of course, war was opposed by some within France, particularly by the Montagnard faction within the Jacobin Club. However, the opposition of Robespierre, Marat, and other leading populist voices within Paris was not enough to silence the drums of war. Nor was the opposition of some Fillons, including Antoine Barnev, a man who had played such a critical role in the summer and spring of 1791. Like Lafayette, Barnev, as a former deputy, was constitutionally forbidden from joining the ministry or the legislative assembly. Unlike Lafayette, Barnev had no military career to pursue, and so it's here that Barnev departs our story. The former Fionn leader retired from politics over the winter of 1791-92, but unlike Meunier, Marie, and other one-time leaders of the National Assembly's factions, Barnev would remain in France. And that would be his mistake. Returning to Grenoble, Barnev would be arrested for treason shortly after the fall of the monarchy. Dragged to Paris in November 1793, he was found guilty by the Revolutionary Tribunal. Once described by historian Francois Mignet as one of the most patriotic members of the National Assembly, Barnev was guillotined as a traitor. Although himself a proponent of peace, in a cruel twist of history, many advocates of war would share Barnev's fate. With the resignation of the war minister Narbonne in March 1792, King Louis found himself on the precipice of war while simultaneously lacking not only a war minister, but an entire ministry. The result of the ministerial crisis of March 
which had been triggered by Brousseauan attacks on the foreign minister de la Sarre, was, conveniently, a new Brousseauan ministry. Supported by the Brousseauans, the man the king turned to was a soldier named Charles-Francois de Maurier. Although installed as the new foreign minister, it was de Maurier who would champion the French war effort. And boy, did he have plans. Before we get into de Maurier's diplomatic and military strategies, however, we should discuss the man himself. Now, in the Brousseauan Ministry's bonus episode, I've already gone into great detail on de Maurier's background and character, but a short summary is as follows. Aged 53 at the time of his promotion to the ministry, de Maurier was a soldier with a diverse resume, to say the least. Having been everything from a mercenary to a spy, the adventurous former noble had followed an unorthodox career path, one that included a stint locked up in the Bastille. Described by many as brave, talented and intelligent, he was, above all else, labelled by both admirers and detractors as ambitious. His enemies would go further, describing him as unscrupulous, devoid of principles and morality, lustful for both distinction and a career. Unlike many of his contemporaries, it is true to say that de Maurier was not energised by belief in some overarching, guiding ideology. However, to describe him as possessing no principles is perhaps an exaggeration. More of a Fayettist than a Brousseauan, he was the odd man out of the Brousseauan ministry, a committed constitutional monarchist who failed to partake in what some historians see as Brousseauan schemes against the throne. In a short synopsis, historian Packwood Adams compliments de Maurier, but nevertheless outlines the flaws often identified by his critics. The ablest of the Girondist ministers was the extraordinary man who took the foreign office. Many types of human character were exemplified by the men of the revolution. Pedants, enthusiasts, heroes, at least three statesmen-like intellects, at least one first-rate theorist, and many egotists and very tragic fools. Du Maurier is the adventurer, very clever and very resolute but almost entirely without principle. He had spent a youth and early manhood in the sort of diplomacy that requires an agent who can be quickly disavowed. He had come to be regarded by respectable officials as an inveterate meddler and morale, and by others as a genius in search for a job. He had seen a little war in the days of Frederick the Great, his unscrupulous hero, and he had spent a short time in the Bastille under Louis XV. Now, he saw in the revolution not a regeneration of humanity, but a career. Described by historian John Dahlberg Acton as one of the great figures of the revolution, the new Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charles-Francois de Maurier, would indeed leave his mark on the history of France. Assuming office in mid-March, he would have only one month to prepare for the coming conflict. Now, 
it's nearly impossible. In fact, I'm going to go as far as saying it is impossible to read about Du Maurier without reading the word ambitious. And his military and diplomatic plans reflect the man. For starters, Du Maurier was thinking big. So big that it has me wondering if the minister was following one too many of those inspirational Instagram accounts. It's not who you are, it's what you invade that defines you. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Seize the Rhine River and you feed him for a lifetime. You know, the usual sorts of quotes that you find on inspirational Instagram accounts. Anyway, I digress. The point is, is that Du Maurier's ambitious personality was reflected in his strategies for France. Far from advocating for a limited war with the German princes, or even a war confined just to Austria, Du Maurier believed a large continental conflict was inevitable. Making no secret in his desire for such a large and unrestrained war, Du Maurier had confidently stated to his predecessor, de la Sarre, You will not have a war with Austria, but a general European war. It shall, however, only end in bringing us glory, profit, and extended dominion. Convinced that a large-scale conflict was on the horizon, Du Maurier desired France to dismiss any idea of a defensive stratagem. Du Maurier favoured an aggressive approach, reasoning that a long and protracted war was not in French interests. Foodstuffs and basic commodities were already expensive and increasingly scarce. Inflation was rising while the financial situation of the nation was deteriorating. Violent religious unrest was exposing weaknesses within the interior, and the people of Paris were by no means quiet. Under such conditions, France was in no place to sustain a prolonged war, especially considering that time was one of the few advantages the French plausibly had. If European armies were given the chance to coordinate their actions, that unity could prove deadly, particularly if the situation in France continued to deteriorate. As a result, Du Maurier adopted a simple and aggressive approach. France would seek to occupy what Du Maurier referred to as her natural boundaries. From these natural boundaries, France could more easily defend herself against the growing coalition of European crowns. As you may have guessed, however, in fact, as seems to always be the case, these natural boundaries did not align with the borders of the French kingdom in 1792. How convenient. There's a link to some maps in the show notes, but I'll do my best to verbally paint a geographic masterpiece. The natural boundaries which Du Maurier referenced were two significant geological obstacles, specifically the Rhine River and the Alps. While these obstacles were by no means impossible to cross, even with elephants, as it turns out, these barriers did act as substantial natural fortifications and lent themselves to be used as foundational components in critical defensive positions. 
De Maurier's plan was to occupy the Duchy of Savoy in the southeast, securing southern France by occupying the territory between the Alps and the Mediterranean Sea. With the southeastern flank secure, De Maurier intended to fortify the larger eastern frontier along the Rhine River. To do this, France would occupy Belgium and Liège in the north, while also securing parts of France already bordering the Rhine. Having occupied Belgium in the north and Savoy in the south, de Maurier believed that these natural boundaries would allow France to hold off the armies of absolutist Europe. Furthermore, Holland and the smaller states of the Holy Roman Empire would be within striking distance from these new boundaries, and the possession of Belgium, which was then the Austrian Netherlands, would be significant leverage at any negotiating table. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Alongside these military plans were diplomatic ones. Although Prussia had signed a defensive alliance with Austria in February 1792, de Maurier hoped to drive a wedge between the historic Germanic rivals. If the French could succeed in keeping the Prussians on the sidelines, such a move would be a diplomatic masterstroke. Now, you may know that the Prussians don't stay on the sidelines. In fact, you may know that pretty much all of Europe joins the anti-revolutionary party. But this Chan offensive isn't as far-fetched as it may look. Although, to be clear, it always had long odds of succeeding. As previously discussed, the Prussians were far more interested in territory to their east than to their west. Poland was the apple of King Frederick William's eye, and the Prussians were fearful of Russian opportunism should Prussia and Austria be occupied in the West. Furthermore, Austria and Prussia were historic rivals, and with the death of Emperor Leopold II in March 1792, an opportunity arose for other German princes to press a claim for the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. 
considering that France and Austria were gearing up for war, perhaps the French could convince the Prussians to revert back to the diplomatic situation prior to the mid-1750s. That is to say, to a time when France and Prussia were allies against their common rival, Austria. Of course, the Prussians weren't the only consequential European power that the new foreign minister had to handle. England was another historic rival, and the neutrality of France's Atlantic neighbour was vital to ensure a quick victory. Talleyrand, the Bishop of Autun, who had enraged Rome by his suggestion to nationalise church land back in 1789, was the man selected for the job. Although he failed to secure significant assistance for the French war effort, the British did reaffirm their commitment to remain neutral, and Talleyrand's trip to England represented a key early step in the famed diplomatic career which saw his name become a byword for crafty and cynical diplomacy. If the Napoleonic era does become a future season of grey history, believe me, we are going to be speaking an awful lot about Talleyrand. Before we discuss what came of these diplomatic and military plans, we should of course discuss the centrepiece of those plans, which was critical for their success. That centrepiece being the French army. On paper, the French army numbered approximately 150,000 men. These regular troops were further augmented by 169 volunteer battalions composed primarily of National Guardsmen, numbering approximately another 100,000 additional heads. Maurier planned to carve these troops into four distinct armies. The least consequential was the Army of the South, under General Montesquieu. Montesquieu would invade the Duchy of Savoy, wedged between the Swiss cantons to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. Savoy, which covers much of modern-day northwestern Italy, was at the time part of the Kingdom of Sardinia. Sardinia being one of the large islands off the western Italian coast, just south of Corsica, and not to be confused with Sicily, the island at the tip of the Italian peninsula, and funnily enough, loosely linked to those Alps-crossing elephants I referenced earlier. For those of you with no idea what I'm talking about, that's a reference to the history of the Roman Republic. And speak of the devil... The Italian peninsula had come a long way since the time of the Romans. On the eve of the French Revolution, Italy, like Germany, was not a united political entity. Far from it. Instead, Italy was the domain of a collection of feuding states, each possessing long and historic rivalries. These states included the Republic of Venice, the Kingdom of Sicily, an assortment of duchies as well as the papal states. Given this, a French assault against the Kingdom of Sardinia was not going to be met with united Italian resistance. In fact, the French hoped it would be met with Italian assistance, particularly from commoners who would naturally benefit from the reforms of the revolution. After all, the French believed that they were 
liberating Savoy from unenlightened despotism and that the local populace would rejoice in their newly found liberty. With Montesquieu securing the southern flank, three armies were reserved for the main theatre of war along the Rhine. The commanders for these three armies were household names not only in France, but in some cases across the European world. The first of these was the Marshal de Rochambeau. Aged in his 60s, the newly appointed Marshal was a seasoned veteran and had already earned his place in history as the commander of French forces during the American Revolutionary War. Rochambeau commanded the Army of the North stationed along much of the French border with Belgium. On his right flank was the Marquis de Lafayette, who commanded the Army of the Centre. Lafayette's forces were stationed along southeast Belgium, Luxembourg, and some territory belonging to the Holy Roman Empire. Finally, to Lafayette's right was the Bavarian-born Marshal Luckner. Aged 70, Luckner was an experienced commander who had fought for an array of European states, joining the French army after the Seven Years' War. Luckner's army of the Rhine was in charge of defending French territory, from roughly Cologne in the north to Basel in the south. Once again, I have put maps in the show notes, as well as portraits of all these individuals. You'll also find these on the new Instagram, Grey History Podcasts, which I've somehow misspelled in my show notes as Great History Podcast, but you know, I'll take it. Great History Podcast, all one word. Anyway, I have well and truly digressed. The point is, maps, portraits, they're all in the show notes, and they're all on Instagram. There, We're done. We're getting back into it now. Okay, full stop. Done. Despite the existence of three separate armies, there was a deliberate concentration of French forces on Belgium. Belgium had undergone its own revolution throughout 1790, and Austrian soldiers had only recently re-established dominion over what was then referred to as the Austrian Netherlands. Believing the populace to be suffering under the yoke of Viennese tyranny, the French assumed that they would be welcomed as liberators, and that the Belgian populace would spring into open revolt to aid the invasion. Thus, the successful invasion sorry, I mean the successful liberation of Belgium, would reap huge dividends for the French. The natural frontiers would be secured, Austria would lose a considerable province, the army's morale would receive a humongous boost, and the French Revolution would become a truly general European affair. With such esteemed leaders placed in command, and with sizable forces at their disposal, some within the French camp were confident of their future success. However, these plans were on paper, and like many paper plans, they had some significant flaws. Not as significant as, say, oh, I don't know, what about a small thermal exhaust port that would allow two well-placed proton torpedoes to destroy the greatest weapon in the galaxy, Yeah, not that bad, but flaws nonetheless. To start with, the French army was ill-organised, ill-equipped, and ill-disciplined. As discussed at length in the bonus episode relating to the Nazi mutiny of 1790, the French army was 
far from a lethal and efficient fighting force even prior to the revolution of 1789. Unsurprisingly, the revolution made things worse. Discipline had evaporated, desertion had increased, the troops were disgruntled and disillusioned. Notably, this deterioration of fighting capability wasn't just affecting the common soldiers, but the officers as well. Thousands of well-trained officers had deserted the royal army, departing France and the wicked ways of the new revolutionary regime. As a result, while officially the French army could in theory field 150,000 soldiers, that's excluding the volunteer battalions, in reality, the real figure was substantially less. After deducting troops reserved for garrison duties, as well as factoring in deaths, desertions and casualties of disease, some historians have suggested that France's army could deploy perhaps just more than 80,000 men. Many of those soldiers were ill-trained, ill-equipped and thoroughly unprepared for the trials of war. Compounding the problems of the army were the poor relations between the soldiers and their commanders. Little trust and respect existed between the men and their superiors. With so many officers having deserted the French flag, the men suspected their remaining superiors of having hidden loyalties to the old regime. And in an environment characterised by belief in concealed conspiracies and seditious cabals, many common soldiers distrusted the true motivations of the men they were supposed to obey. Further undermining, although by no means crippling the effectiveness of the army, was the dysfunctional relationship that existed between the regular troops and the volunteer battalions. Known as the Whites and the Blues respectively, the Volunteers, the Blues, were generally enlisted from National Guardsmen, and as such had the advantages of electing their own officers, receiving better pay, and securing the promise of being disbanded after the campaign. This not only encouraged resentment from the regular troops, but it simultaneously fostered desertion from one to the other. Furthermore, the election of officers also lifted the most revolutionary individuals into positions of command, the precise type of individual who was most sceptical of the leadership of the traditional army. In totality, the army, the centrepiece of de Maurier's aggressive strategy, was hardly ready for the prolonged war France was about to face. In fact, it wasn't ready for any conflict with a comparable adversary. Yet, hindsight is a beautiful thing, and despite the deficiencies of the French army, war was nonetheless declared on the 20th of April, 1792. Springing into action, the initial assaults were made just days later. On the 29th of April, an officer named Dillon was ordered to attack the Austrian garrison at Tournai. Located near the Belgian border and roughly 50 miles or 70 kilometres southwest of Brussels, this assault was meant to be an easy affair. In reality, the assault was, well, to quote historian Simon Sharma, a pathetic fiasco. After the briefest of skirmishes with Austrian forces, 
Dillon's cavalry, who were the professional soldiers, broke and fled. Needless to say, the volunteer forces soon followed suit. In the chaos that followed, some Frenchmen believed this seemingly inexplicable setback to be the work of treasonous officers, including Dillon himself. Despite being hostile to the emigres and the old regime, Dillon was seized by retreating soldiers who condemned him as a counter-revolutionary aristocrat who had orchestrated a military defeat. Found guilty for crimes he did not commit, the Patriot was murdered by his own men. He was spared a beheading, but his body was flung onto a giant bonfire once his troops reached the town of Lille. I've put a depiction of this public cremation in the show notes. This military setback was not an isolated incident. Another officer named Baron had been ordered to assault Mons, yet after a brief skirmish, his undisciplined force was soon retreating as well. Baron was lucky enough to survive this retreat, but he would not be lucky enough to survive the terror. The setbacks unfolding to the west soon engulfed Lafayette, who was forced to retreat from his freshly occupied positions. To the south, General Montesquieu's invasion of Savoy would fare no better, and without any major battles undertaken, the unstoppable armies of the revolution soon found themselves at a standstill. As you might expect, the murder of Dillon and the setbacks on the frontiers had significant consequences both within the army and within the capital. Within the army, officers now feared that the slightest defeat would condemn them to share Dillon's fate. Already distrustful of and disgusted by the rabble under their command, officers continued to emigrate, while others, including the famed Marshal Rochambeau, resigned. Worse yet, defections continued, with three regiments defecting to the enemy camp in May. Amongst the regular soldiers, these defeats and defections, followed by a seemingly inexplicable lull in fighting, merely confirmed their suspicions about the secret loyalties of their commanders. Belgium was ready to be liberated. Belgian patriots gnawed at the shackles of Austrian despotism. Why were the French armies not moving forward? That was the question the troops asked. And the answer was simple. It just happened to change depending on who you were talking to. The common soldiers increasingly believed that their officers were deliberately stymieing the war effort. And the officers increasingly believed that there was no reliable force in which to conduct the war effort. Blaming the Parisian revolutionaries for fostering the poor discipline which was infecting the troops. The leadership of the army soon saw the war as hopeless. By the 18th of May, less than a month after the declaration of war, the French commanders personally recommended to King Louis that France should seek an immediate peace. Intriguingly, Lafayette wrote to the former Austrian ambassador in early May. That former ambassador 
was a man named the Comte de Mercy Argenteau, a man with connections to both the French and Austrian courts. Lafayette, the hero of two worlds, secretly asked de Mercy for a ceasefire. Convinced that the war was futile, and that the radical clubs of Paris must be quashed for the safety of the nation, Lafayette was willing to contemplate a coup. If he could secure peace on the frontiers, the commander of the army of the centre was willing to march on Paris, subdue the capital and secure the constitutional monarchy. Perhaps reasoning that continued conflict would offer the best avenue to liberate the king and reverse the revolution more completely, de Mercy did not aid Lafayette's request. Lafayette was undeterred, however, and we will see in future episodes his efforts to restore order and stability to a revolution which he increasingly saw as dangerously unstable. In Paris, news of the multiple military setbacks shocked the capital. To borrow a phrase from Marat, the people had been promised that cannonballs would fly backwards in the face of the revolutionary armies. Instead, it was the revolutionary armies flying backwards, and they had yet to face the true firepower of the coalition forces. Seemingly overnight, the easy war, the quick war, the simple war, was anything but. Panic swept the capital. Once again, the discourse between the Fillons, the Brissoans and the Montagnards descended into bitter accusations and personal denunciations. In an environment where treason lurked in every shadow, in an atmosphere where political factions increasingly saw each other not as rivals but as enemies, the defeats on the frontiers reinforced and amplified both division and distrust. It did not take long before the worst was feared, and the rumour mills of Paris went to work. Historian Timothy Tackett summarises the situation. For the political leadership, the miserable performance of the Assembly in the first weeks of the war was profoundly shocking. All the old anxieties about conspiracy and the threat of internal enemies striking from within re-emerged with a vengeance. Rumours of all kinds swept through the city, that the king was about to flee again, and that the crown had already been sent to Germany, that a palace official was seen burning papers, that the king's private guard included a number of refractory priests in disguise, that plans were afoot to kill the revolutionary leaders. It was in this environment of fear and panic that Jacques Brousseau and his associates denounced the source of the nation's woes. According to the Brousseauans, a gigantic conspiracy was actively working to overturn the revolution. Denouncing the Austrian committee, Brousseau alleged that there could be no doubt that counter-revolutionaries within France were crippling the nation's war effort and seeking to destroy the assembly. How else could one explain these inexplicable defeats? 
When asked what evidence they had of this conspiracy, the Brassoans noted that no physical evidence existed, but also claimed that it shouldn't exist. The nature of conspiracy, at least any good conspiracy, is that it should leave no evidence behind. As one contemporary put it, What do you wish us to prove? Conspiracies cannot be written down. Despite the lack of evidence, there was no doubt amongst key leaders of the revolutionary left that a plot did exist. Furthermore, many Fillon deputies believed that the Brissouan accusations should at least be taken seriously. Convinced that the conspirators could strike again at any moment, drastic measures were taken by the Assembly. The Assembly declared itself in permanent session, and groups of deputies remained around the clock so that legislators could confront the anticipated coup whenever it materialised. Parisians mimicked their deputies. For several nights, the city was illuminated by candles on windowsills as ordinary people tried to hamper the seditious activities of counter-revolutionaries by robbing them of the cover of darkness. Consumed by trepidation and angst, it's here that historian Francois Mignot states that the Assembly entered upon a new career, a career of war. Henceforth, Mignot asserts that the National Legislature would regulate its conduct far more with reference to the public's safety than with regard to the mere justice of the case. Confronting a new crisis of their own making, the leading figures of the Brissouan faction sought to remedy the situation with radical measures. Firstly, the legislature ruthlessly pursued the non-juring clergy, the refractory priests who had failed to swear allegiance to the new regime and instead had remained loyal to the Church of Rome. Secondly, it was proposed the king's personal guard be disbanded, a force that was granted to the king by the National Assembly. Finally, it was suggested that a new force of some 20,000 volunteers be summoned to the capital. This force could be used to protect the nation against its foreign foes, and conveniently against domestic ones as well. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. 
Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Diving into the detail of these measures, the new laws against the nation's refractory priests were a dramatic escalation of the legislature's attempts to curb the activities of the renegade clergy. Almost half of the nation's clerics had refused to accept the controversial constitution of the clergy, and Rome's outright rejection of the policy encouraged priests to resist what they saw as an unjustified and ungodly encroachment on the domain of God. As discussed in previous episodes, the debates surrounding non-constitutional priests were already bitter and tense prior to the commencement of hostilities in the spring of 1792. As a reminder, back in November 1791, the Legislative Assembly had passed a controversial decree which permitted the imprisonment of any non-juring priest who failed to leave their post or who disturbed the public peace. The King vetoed this decree, along with another targeting the emigres. But that didn't mean that many deputies in the assembly ceased to view the refractory clergy as anything other than preachers of counter-revolutionary sedition. As the Brousseauan deputy Maximum Isnard put it, Every corner of France is being soiled by the crimes of this caste. With the renegade clergy already viewed as a key source of internal unrest, historian Peter McPhee states plainly that the war made the position of the non-juring clergy intolerable. With the coalition armies laying claim to the title of a holy crusade, the nation's renegade priests could not be treated with anything but harsh and repressive measures. From the perspective of Paris, these measures were justified because non-jurors were perceived by the deputies as being akin to a seditious fifth column. Of course, out in the countryside, the local residents supporting and encouraging these renegade priests saw them as heroic martyrs, holy men who were being persecuted for merely following the will of the one true God. With defeats on the frontiers and with religious unrest growing in certain departments across the country, In late May, the Assembly passed a new law which would allow for the forced deportation of priests provided they were denounced by 20 citizens. Interestingly, and as a little side note, it was proposed that some priests be deported to the French colony of Guiana. Guiana is still part of France today, which means, believe it or not, that France technically shares a land border with Brazil. If that random fact ever wins you a point at pub trivia, I expect an email. 
Anyway, as per usual, I've digressed. Having taken decisive and divisive measures against the subversive priests, the attention of the assembly shifted from agents of disorder to agents of escape. As one of the National Assembly's final acts, the king had been granted a constitutional guard. Now, the exact number of the guard is something that has been elusive to me, but let's call it roughly 2,000 men. In the wake of the defeats on the frontiers, rumours swirled that this guard had been stacked with committed royalists, including, my god, they're everywhere, non-constitutional priests. This really was a reds under the beds kind of moment, or a clerics causing hysterics, if you will. With fears ever-present that the king was ready to escape again, the assembly dissolved the king's guard on the 29th of May. This is important because the constitutional guard, as the name implies, was meant to protect the constitution. And despite surrounding the king in the Tuileries Palace, the force was far more about keeping the unpredictable people of Paris out rather than keeping the escape-prone monarchs in. With the disillusion of this guard, the assembly was removing a key element of the royal family's protection from the turbulent, unpredictable, and at times quite violent Parisian mob. With the guard removed and the authority of the monarchy in tatters, the king was left with only one defence. His charm. Finally, Having robbed the king of the protection that the National Assembly had granted him, the Legislative Assembly sought to boost its own defences. On the 8th of June, the Assembly adopted the proposal of the War Minister Savon to summon a new force of 20,000 men. This force was to be drawn from volunteers across the departments, and according to Savon, the proposed force would be able to defend both the king and the Assembly from the revolution's enemies. This might sound like quite an innocuous suggestion, but believe me, we're about to see otherwise. Before moving on, I should note that this new group of volunteers were quickly dubbed the Federes, that name being in reference to the federations which had been occurring across the country since the revolution began, when National Guard units would get together and hold a big, uniting federation ceremony. This was discussed way back in episode 18. It's also linked to the huge Fête de la Federation, which had occurred in Paris on the 14th of July 1790. And in fact, the upcoming anniversary of the fall of the Bastille was used to help justify Savan's suggestion that communes around the country each supply volunteers to simultaneously celebrate and defend French liberty. Now, before we get into the response of the court to all of these proposals, it is worth noting that these various policies are deemed by some historians as proof that the Brissoans sought to use the trials of war to force radical measures upon the king. Furthermore, that not only did they wish to compel the king to adopt their more radical political agenda, but that they deliberately pursued measures which they knew the king could not support and thus force him to issue unpopular vetoes. Once the vetoes had been issued, the Brissoans would be able to assail the king, 
question his loyalties, further undermine the Constitution of 1791 and push for constitutional reforms. Potentially even push for a republic. Not all historians believe that the Brasoans were indulging in such Machiavellian schemes, but it's no small minority that see ulterior motives to the extreme measures officially adopted for the defence of the kingdom. However, other historians, such as historian Eric Hazen, are keen to point out that this escalation on the part of the Girondins only occurred after the military defeat of mid-1792. Furthermore, this escalation occurred after the military's leadership had largely capitulated, seemingly without a fight. Hazen proposes that the Girondins only sought confrontation after the Fillon-appointed generals had essentially rebelled by endorsing peace and proclaiming the war to be untenable. Accepting peace would be politically disastrous for the faction which had championed war, and so the Girondins had to fight back. Suspecting the court to be supporting the military commanders, and being assaulted on their left flank by Robespierre and the Montagnards, Hazen argues that it was these unforeseen developments which resulted in the Brousseauans pursuing such an aggressive approach. Historian George Lefebvre agrees, stating that The Girondins saw no choice but to fall back on the policy of intimidation which had brought them to power. So, as previously discussed, the motivations of the Brousseauans remain grey. But it's important to note that depending on one's view, these radical remedies can appear much more like concealed calculations or desperate gambles. Perhaps unsurprisingly, all of these measures, to varying degrees, were opposed by the court. The king, who hated the fact that he had accepted the civil constitution of the clergy, was determined not to punish priests for merely following the teachings of God. From the perspective of the faithful, the non-adjuring clergy had done nothing wrong. It was the revolution which had needlessly split from the righteous path. Likewise, the king resisted the curtailing of his own autonomy with both the dissolution of the constitutional guard and the creation of the new federé camp. Interestingly, and highlighting the divisions which existed within the various revolutionary factions, it wasn't just the king who resisted the summoning of 20,000 volunteers to the capital. Lafayette, one if not the most prominent Fillon at the time, wrote to the king urging him to resist the measure. Likewise, Robespierre and other Montagnards resisted what they saw as a Girondist force being summoned for political gain. Sure, the Federés could be used to protect the capital from hostile armies. Sure, the Federés could be used to protect the capital from a coup, such as the one Lafayette was contemplating. But, the Federés could also be used as a force to quell the city's powerful sections, suppressing the city's more radical political clubs, extinguish the increasingly militant activities of certain citizens. 
We'll dive into the rising militancy of Paris next episode. But in short, the Montagnards had no interest in creating a new weapon for the assembly dominated by untrustworthy Brissoans and, to a lesser extent, reactionary Fillons. The Montagnard faction of the Jacobin Club derived much of its power from outside of the assembly. The clubs and the political societies, as well as the more radical sections and communities of Paris. The Brissoans derived much of their power from the institutions which they dominated, namely the assembly and the ministry. The establishment of an armed camp risked altering the city's power balance in favour of the Brissoans, as the federés would presumably report to the assembly and the ministry. The Montagnards increasingly saw the Girondins as not merely misguided, but corrupt and even traitorous. Thus, it was not just the court which opposed the creation of the Federé camp, but the Fillons and the Montagnards as well, who feared what the Federé camp would be able to do. Furthermore, resistance to the measure arose from the National Guard. A petition signed by 8,000 guardsmen forcibly rejected the idea that the guard was unable to protect the capital. One deputation to the assembly went further, proclaiming Savan had violated the constitution, had shown himself the vile instrument of a faction that rends the kingdom. Of course, the National Guard and the municipal sections that exerted control over many units were themselves looking out for their own best interests. Just like the Fillons and the Montagnards, the Guard and the Sections had no desire for a competitor on their theoretical monopoly of force. But perhaps the most interesting resistance to the Federé proposal came neither from the court nor a political faction. Instead, it arose from within the ministry itself. the foreign minister who had been largely leading the war effort, was absolutely furious at Savan's proposal. Constitutionally, Savan, despite being war minister, was indeed out of place. The ability to propose increasing France's army lay with the king alone. However, Savan had failed to consult both his majesty and his peers when he proposed his new force to the assembly. Historian Adolf Thiers notes the position of the Brissoans as he summarises the situation. The minister Servan, without having received orders from the king or having consulted his colleagues, proposed on the occasion of the approaching confederation of the 14th of July the formation of a camp of 20,000 Federalists for the protection of the assembly and the capital. It is easy to imagine how eagerly this project was embraced by the majority, composed of Girondists. At this period, their power was at its height. They were supreme in the assembly, where the constitutionalists and republicans were in the minority, and where the pretended neutrals were but pusillanimously indifferent, always becoming more and more submissive as the majority increased in strength. Besides this, by means of Pétion, the mayor, who entirely accorded with their views, 
they were masters of Paris. Their project was to gain dominion over the king and thwart his suspected designs, which they hoped to accomplish by the formation of a camp. And in this, they actuated not by personal ambition, but by that of party and opinion. As soon as the proposition of Servan was made public, de Maurier, in full council, demanded by what authority he had presumed to make it. He answered by his own personal authority. In that case, replied de Maurier, the title of Minister of War must not in future be affixed to the name of Servan. And the dispute between them became so animated that, but for the presence of the king, blood would certainly have been shed in the council room. Servan offered to withdraw his motion, but that would have been useless, for the assembly had already adopted it, and the king would have gained nothing by such a step but the appearance of violently constraining his minister. De Maurier, therefore, opposed it with all his might. So, with setbacks on the frontiers, and with the armies of Europe beginning to stir, by June 1792, revolutionary France found herself on the precipice of disaster. Unexpected defeats had shattered the brief unity between the nation's major political factions. Once again, accusations flew between the Fillons, the Brousseauans and the Montagnards as each genuinely considered the others to be corrupt, dangerous, misguided and increasingly traitorous. Compounding these problems was the emergence of political deadlock between the legislative and executive branches. The Assembly had passed numerous controversial decrees, and the court had no intention of sanctioning these radical remedies. Due to the flaws of the Constitution of 1791, there was no way to break this deadlock, no way to override a veto, nor dissolve the Assembly. Instead, it merely looked like the disorder would perpetuate until the revolution was crushed by a combination of foreign foes and seditious conspirators. The nation was divided. The army was divided. The branches of government were divided. Hell, even the brand new ministry was divided. As Abraham Lincoln would go on to say, a house divided against itself cannot stand. However, before we begin to discuss the crumbling and eventual collapse of this house, we need to talk about developments in Paris regarding the kind of people who actually built houses. Specifically, we need to discuss the aforementioned militancy that was fast becoming a hallmark of some groups within the capital. It's time to discuss the famous sans-culottes. Thank you for listening to episode 30, Setbacks and Remedies. In this week's episode extra, available exclusively for Patreon supporters, we'll be diving into the career of the Austrian ambassador de Mercy, as well as teasing out some of the ideas around Lafayette's little coup d'etat thought bubble. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the sans-culottes of Paris. Just who they were, what they wanted, 
which factions lined up behind their cause, and how their increasing militancy changed the calculations of other revolutionaries. A reminder that if you enjoyed this episode of Grey History, if you're thinking to yourself, I would love some more Grey History, then the best way for you to help make that happen is by signing up as a Patreon supporter of the show. There are two bonus episodes waiting for you right now, as well as a range of other exclusive content. These episodes are taking me roughly 40 hours each, so a buck or two would be a great way to support the show. For the price of half a cup of coffee, someone's getting a great deal. Of course, I appreciate that times are tough at the moment, so you can also support the show by telling your friends and family, sharing the podcast on social media, or simply taking 30 seconds to leave a written review on your preferred podcast platform. With Valentine's Day around the corner, I'll also accept love letters, but reviews are just as good. As always, thank you for listening, thank you for supporting the show, stay safe, and have a great day. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.